Good morning, Grace Church. How are you? Doing good? You look good? I think hundreds of the women in the crowd went to the IF gathering this weekend. If you're, yeah. <clears throat> Amen. I know you've heard like 10 sermons already this weekend, so can you, can you handle one more, ladies? Uh, yeah, okay, I guess not. Great. <laughs> Fellas, you don't have a choice. You got you, you to gotta endure one. So, uh, well, I'm glad you're here. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors. If you have a Bible, would you grab it and turn to Mark chapter 1? We're going to pick up right where Alyssa just read. Uh, over the last month, we've been in the book of Mark, and we've been walking through this, and it's been so good for my own heart. Uh, I hope you can say the same for you. Uh, we've seen Jesus get baptized, go into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. We saw his teaching ministry start. He's called his first disciples. He's cast out demons. He's healed the sick. Uh, last week, Pastor Scott showed us what he did in one day, like a, a day in the life of Jesus. We followed along. And something is happening in Jesus that's never happened before in teachers of, of this time period. Uh, he's teaching with authority. There's, there's power, not just in his words, but there's power in his hands. He's casting out demons. And uh, I, I don't know if you noticed this last week, but demons have great theology. Everybody else is like, who's Jesus? And the first demon we meet is like, I know exactly who you are, the son of God who's come to destroy us. You're like, yeah, that's what's going on. So there, there's something happening in the words of Christ, in the hands of Christ that is powerful. Uh, and, and our goal in this journey through the book of Mark, this is so, this is so important, stay with me, is, is not just to see what Jesus does and be amazed. And it's not just to hear what Jesus says and to learn. Our goal is far bigger than that as a church. Our goal is to become like Jesus in his words and in his actions. So to say it another way, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. So that's what we're doing in this series. We're showing you the lifestyle of Jesus so that you can not just go, oh, that was cool for him. You can go, oh, that, that has implications on me. Because adopting the lifestyle of Jesus is what it means to become like him. But this is not easy because Jesus is not your Uncle Bob. Like I know you can adopt the lifestyle of your Uncle Bob and that you can do that in an afternoon, right? I don't know if you have an Uncle Bob. Uh, I don't. Personally, I have an Uncle George. But to become like your uncle is not that hard. To become like Jesus will take a lifetime of work, and we've said this a few weeks ago, we are not adopting this lifestyle of Jesus in a vacuum. We're adopting that lifestyle in a time and a place and a culture, and the scripture that we have read today has some unique hurdles for us in our time and our unique place. So today's scripture is hard, and, and I, I think that's going to be typical for us. Jesus is going to challenge us today. So I know Alyssa just read it, but let's read it again with the implications of taking on his lifestyle. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, and rising very early in the morning. So already we're in big trouble, right? Can I, can I get an amen from the youth group? Yeah. You're like, adopting the lifestyle of Jesus. You're like, I didn't know, no thank you. Like, I'm out already. Uh, very early in the morning, while it was still dark. Okay, it's even worse. I know we're about to have a time change in San Diego. So you're like, okay, that'll be a little, that's actually going to make it worse for us. Oh, yeah, gosh, Okay. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, after the longest day of ministry ever, you would think like Jesus is going to sleep in or he's just going to be like, man, yesterday was great, today I'm going to just get some rest. No, no, while it's still dark, he departed and went into a desolate place and he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him, they went searching for him. 
And they found him and they said, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let's go to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I've come. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. After a crazy day of ministry, Jesus rises early in the morning. He goes out to what in the Greek is called the Eremos, the, the lonely place, the desolate place. And he goes to be with God there. And this is a regular thing in the life of Jesus and his rhythm. You see this three other times in the book of Mark. And one of the times is at night. So if you're a night owl, <laughs> one of the times is at night. It happens to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. So that's the, the bad part about that. Is it's a very difficult night in Jesus' life. But three times he gets up early and he goes and he prays. He leaves the crowded place to intentionally seek the lonely place. He leaves where everybody's having the party to go and to be alone with God. And the disciples go searching for him high and low. And it's not easy to find. Like he, Jesus goes where it's not, uh, this is hide and go seek kind of stuff. Like they cannot find him and they are getting stressed out. In the Greek it's an imperative when they show up and they say, uh, everyone is looking for you. Like the disciples rebuke Jesus. All that he did the day before, then he just gets up to go to pray. And when they find him, they rebuke him. And they're like, everybody's looking for you. You've got ministry to perform, Jesus. You don't have time for this being alone stuff. Everyone is here for you, Jesus. You're way too busy for silence and solitude. How does he respond? He doesn't respond, oh, man, you guys are right. I'm so sorry. That's fantastic. Let's gather everybody together. No, no, Jesus responds. He's almost like sad about it. He's sad. He, he responds, and he's like, healing is not what I've come here for. I've come here to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, so, so let's go. And early in the life of Jesus, early in the ministry of Jesus, sorry, you have a tension that's starting to build. They didn't flock to Jesus to hear about the breakthrough of the kingdom of God. They flocked to Jesus to, to see improvement to their health. That's what's happening early in the ministry. And we're going to look at that next week uh, extensively as Jesus does a lot of healing. But you, you see in Jesus' response a sadness that comes over him for people that pursue him just for his healing instead of pursuing him for the kingdom's advancement. But in the middle of this season that Jesus is in of, of starting the ministry... We see a spiritual discipline Jesus had that we need to walk in as well. And the discipline or this habit is the discipline of silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. I want to give you a working definition for that. Silence and solitude is this. It's intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and God. Intentionally, up early, before it even the sun rises, to be alone with God and alone with ourselves. Uh, if, if you've been reading through the Lent book, we borrowed a lot of that content from Richard Foster's book, The Celebration of Discipline. And Richard Foster said this. He says, loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. Loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. So you're going to be alone to be filled. You're not going to be alone to be uh, bummed out or sad. You're actually getting filled, and this is what you need. There's a pastor in Hawaii named Wayne Cordero, and he says this about silence and solitude. He says there's a difference between isolation and solitude. They may contain similar characteristics, but in reality, they are worlds apart. Solitude is a chosen separation for the refining of your soul. Isolation is what you crave when you neglect the first. So if you don't get alone with God, you often want to be alone. Did you catch that? It's, it's important to get alone on purpose to be with the Lord and to be with yourself. And if you don't walk in that, then oftentimes you don't even want to be around people and it miss, you, you miss the mark completely. 
So intentionally separating yourself is for the design of God to refine your soul, to be external and internally quiet. In silence and solitude, you slow down enough to feel the emotions that you've been running away from in your busy life. You face your feelings in a safe place with God. You sit with him. Now, we live in a culture that has no desire to encourage silence and solitude. We don't like to be quiet. We have nonstop noise to, in, to avoid the internal noise that's going on inside of us. Listen, I feel this too. I walk in my house and it's quiet. I just yell, Alexa, play anything. I don't care. Like, just something. Just play something. Uh, most days I am, I'm walking around with headphones in my ear. And if I'm driving in the car, I'm listening to an audio book. This is not easy. This is not what we uh, are, are being pushed into in our culture. We live in a chaotic, over-busy, digitally distracted, noisy, urban world. And in the middle of that world, Jesus wants us to take on his lifestyle. But the first challenge we face is to slow down and focus. And this isn't disengagement. This is actually soul engagement. I'm just not asking you to go be alone and be bored. I'm saying get alone with God and feel what it feels like to sit with him. Uh, young people, I love you, I'm for you, but one of the main reasons you struggle with your engagement with God is simple. Noise and distraction. Noise and distraction. It is much easier to scroll through Instagram than it is to pray. It is much easier to scroll through TikTok than it is to pray. It is much easier to scroll through these things than it is to pray. You, when, you're, when you're preaching sermons, it's, it's a lot easier to preach when the crowd feels like, oh, I have a need for this. This sermon is hard because I'm not sure you believe you need to get alone with God. Because of so many other distractions, it's hard to convince you that this is a better life. But silence and solitude might be the habit that shows that your life is well lived. And, and, and it's, it's an opportunity. This is, this is the end game for us. To learn how to be ourselves with God. To learn how to sit with God and be ourselves with God. And that is what happens in silence and solitude. So, now... I want, to, I want to take a moment here and transition a little bit uh, and, and share something with you. Um, you cannot, and I cannot, pray our way into Christ-likeness. You can't learn your way into Christ-likeness. You have to imitate your way into Christ-likeness. So in other words, you can't just learn a bunch of stuff and be like, um, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Matrix. I know I referenced it a couple of weeks ago with the red pill, blue pill, ha ha. Uh, but in the movie The Matrix, there's this person named Trinity, and she'll like download stuff to Neo. And Neo's like, I need to know how to fly this fighter jet. And it's like downloaded into him. That is not how it works with Jesus. You don't just get to download. You don't learn something and be like, okay, um, patience, uh, Trinity. Haha, there's a metaphor there. Uh, Trinity, could you download patience? Because my kids are driving me crazy. And Trinity just downloads patience. And you're like, okay, I got it. Cool. Um, you can't just read a book about patience and then all of a sudden get patience. Like, you've got to imitate your way into Christ's likeness. You can't learn your way into it. But what you see in Jesus is this keystone habit of getting alone with God. Getting alone with God. And so with the season of Lent, with all this going on, you can zoom in and see this keystone habit of being alone with God. But I'm going to zoom out for a moment and just talk about habits. Spiritual disciplines, a.k.a. habits. Now, when you hear habits... That tends to fall into the world of superficial things like biting your nails. That, that would be a bad habit. Uh, or playing Wordle. <laughs> anybody? No? Um, anybody play Wordle? Yeah, let's pray for them. 
It's a big, it's a big deal in their life. It's an identity issue. It's too far. That's just a habit. Okay. Habits are haha, right? Netflix is, is just you're watching a show and then they're like, we're going to start the next one in 10 seconds. And you're like, I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to do anything different in the next 11 seconds. So you might as well start the next show. These, these are what's going on. Habits, sometimes they're sinful habits and sometimes they're morally neutral habits. Sinful habits would include things like uh, grabbing the toothpaste from the middle of the container. That would be a sinful <laughs> habit. A morally, morally neutral habit would be like leaving your socks around the house. That would be morally neutral. Um, yeah, like if you're married and your wife puts her cold feet on you, that would be a sinful habit. If you snore sometimes, that would be a morally neutral habit. So you're, you're getting, the, you see what I'm saying here? These are just habits usually land in that world of like, oh, you know, it's no big deal. I just have some bad habits. So a habit is something that we do without even thinking about it, and it's formed by repetition. What you see Jesus doing is a habit. It's something he does without even thinking about. He did not have to think about, was I going to get up and go? It's what he did by repetition. Now, 40% of our life is habit, according to social scientists, where we, our brains are designed by God to have the gift of autopilot. You ever been driving somewhere and you didn't even think about it? Tying your shoes or doing stuff? You're just on autopilot. Habits are all around us. And at the end of your life, you are a sum total of your habits. You are your habits. So all of a sudden, it goes from, oh, that's interesting and kind of funny, to, oh, that's, that's significant. Is this, is this who I want to be in my life? Because, listen, your grandkids will know you by your habits. Your legacy will be your habits. And often, habits show us a glimpse of what's actually going in our heart. What's going on in our heart is often better seen by our habits than it is by our knowledge. And often in the church, it's like, who knows the most? But in the scriptures, it's who's got the habits and the lifestyle of Jesus playing out in day-to-day life. So I, I want to take a moment to talk about habits. I want to explain this to you theologically, and then I want to give this to you as practically as possible, because I think this actually might change your whole life. Like, I think by the end of this, you'd be like, I'm a different person because I went to church, because of what Christ has done for us theologically, and because of what's possible for us practically. So, theological first. You ready? Here we go. When you became a Christian, two things happened. You were given a new relationship with Jesus, heart, and a new relationship to sin, habits. One more time. You became a Christian. Two things happened. New relationship with Jesus, new heart. New relationship to sin, habits. And by your new relationship to sin, I mean you now have a non-relationship with sin. You and sin broke up, and you're never, ever, 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 ever getting back together. Taylor Swift, anybody? Anybody? I got one. Okay, great. Two. The rest of you are not going to like me anymore because I referenced Taylor Swift in my sermon. Okay. You guys need to pray about your sin, too, all right? You have a new relationship with sin. You're never getting back together. That's what happened. So to give it to you in a metaphor or into a, <laughs> an illustration, Here, here's your heart, right? This is my fist. And this is before you were a Christian. It was a dead, unbelieving heart. <laughs> and everything spiritual that came at your dead, unbelieving heart just bounced off of it. This is before you knew Jesus. But slowly, through community, through hearing the word preached, through people telling you about Jesus, through engaging the scriptures on your own, 
slowly your heart starts to soften, and then there's a moment, and it may be a slow burn moment, it may be like the sun rising kind of moment, or it may be an instantaneous moment, but slowly or, or quickly, here comes the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus and the arrow of the gospel, and it lands in your heart with the mega freight train of divine power, and in that moment, the gospel hits your heart. You are a believer, and a believer comes into being, and a new heart is given to you. And now your dead heart is united to Jesus in an instantaneous awakening of faith. Theologically, in that moment, something happened to you. You were immediately made perfect before God. Justification. You were justified before God, almost as if you never had a dead heart in the first place. Your new heart replaced your old heart, and it's like you never had a dead heart in the first place. And your new heart, it came with new passions and new desires and new leadership and new hopes and new purpose and new future, but it did not come preloaded with new habits. We get a new heart filled with new desires, but this new heart does not come prepackaged with new habits. You have been justified before God, but you are not yet in the process, you are not fully sanctified yet before God. The new birth does not produce immediate perfection. That's sanctification. God's strategy in changing you is the gift of a new heart and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And your new heart does supposedly treasure Christ above all things. That's the process. But it's being transformed day by day. Day by day. Please do not be an all-at-once Christian that thinks all at once you've got to have everything perfect. Because you're not going to make it. Like, you need to be a crock pot, not a microwave. We've talked about this. I don't know how much crock pots you're using in your day-to-day life, but think about that. You put all these ingredients in, it takes a while, but by God's grace, you you get a great dinner at the end of this thing. You need to be a day-by-day Christian, or as the Bible says, a one degree of glory to the next. That's how we're transformed. That's sanctification. Now, there's two myths in this process. The myth number one is this. People, they do this, that, that you think all you need to do is know the Bible. And there's a group of people that, as long as I know the Bible, that's all I need. And there's another group of people that's like, I don't need to do anything, it's all God. And those are the traps that we could find ourselves in. If I know the Bible, I'm doing it. No, no, there are a lot of people that know the scriptures and don't have the lifestyle of Jesus. They're called the Pharisees. So that is a problem. There's another group of people that go, I don't need to do anything, it's all God. And they miss out on joining God in the work of being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. So God made you in Christ positionally holy, justification. But the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in Christ is making you personally holy, sanctification. One more time, theologically, habits. You have been made positionally holy in Christ because of what he's done for you. You forever stand before God completely and totally holy in your position. Are you yet personally holy in your life? No, Will you get there today? No, because you're not becoming your Uncle Bob. You're becoming Jesus. Will this take a lifetime? Yes. Do you need to join the Holy Spirit in the work of becoming like Jesus? Yes. That is the process of what God is doing in you. Your new heart is positionally holy, which enables the Spirit to work into you to become personally holy. One more time. Your new heart, positionally holy. This is what enables the possibility of you becoming personally holy. Now everything in your life is done inside out, not outside in. 
So if I could plead with you for a minute, this gets missed in the church so often when you talk about habits or spiritual disciplines or working for the Lord. You miss this so often. So let me say it as clearly and as spicy as I possibly can. Your your personal holiness does not achieve for you positional holiness. Your personal holiness or lack thereof does not affect your positional holiness before a holy God. Your personal holiness does not achieve for you positional holiness. You cannot work for your salvation no matter how gloriously disciplined you are. Why? Because your heart is dead. And God had to bring you a resurrected heart. And your personal holiness or lack thereof does not affect your positional holiness before God. But I guarantee Most of you in the functional day-to-day life believe sometimes that if you don't clean it up, you're never going to make it with God. And many of you, you struggle in prayer because your personal holiness is lacking. And many of you, you struggle to even believe that God loves you. Why? Because you have a life that's messed up. Listen, join the club. We all have lives that are messed up. Your ongoing journey of personal holiness does not affect your positional holiness. Your union with Christ is fixed eternally fixed before God, but your communion with Christ will ebb and flow. Can I get an amen, (laughs) right? Your, Your union with Christ is fixed. Why? Because you didn't do anything to achieve it. You didn't do anything to earn it. Your dead heart was gifted a new life in Christ, justification. But your communion with Christ will ebb and flow. That is why following Jesus is a war. It is a work. It takes effort. You see this in the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 where he writes about this. But I want to talk to you about habits, but I want to make sure you understand the possible, you even have the possibility to create good habits because you were given a new heart by Jesus who achieved something for you. So in Romans chapter 6, you'll see this play out. So let me read this to you. Romans chapter 6 verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. That's theologically. Now it comes to us, verse 11. In the same way, positionally holy, because Jesus did it. Verse 11 shifts. In the same way, You count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore positional holiness. Therefore Jesus did it all. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. This is, in the Greek, almost a cuss word. (laughs) Do we know it? Can I say it? No, I can't. It's in the Bible. I can say it, right? Paul says, you're damned if you do. That's it. So it's not almost a cuss word. It's like... If, if you live like this, you're damned if you do. You're damned if you do. By no means. No way. Not so with us. 
Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be a slave to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. Amen. You are positionally holy because of Jesus and his grace, and you can become personally holy because of what's been done for you. God does for us what we could not do for ourselves, justification. Sanctification is what the Spirit of God is doing in you day by day. So how does God sanctify you? He sanctifies you by justifying you first. You've got to get that order figured out. You were once dead in sin. Now you're dead to sin. You were dead in sin. Now you're dead to sin. I don't know if you've you know, been around baptism services or seen people share their testimonies. There are some people probably even in this room who have radical testimonies of like, I was doing drugs and like hurting people and I was had this crazy story. I met Jesus. I've never touched another drug. I've never sinned again. You're like, oh my God, that's not my story at all. But God has radically transformed some people. There are other people in the room who have had an experience with Jesus and then all of a sudden their sin got worse after following Jesus. And that is on the table for all of us. That is, that's what's happened in the world. We have an ongoing fight with sin in some places. And in other places, we get total victory from sin in an instant. But who knows what's going to happen? I just know that the process is a war. So let's pretend you're a new believer for just a minute. You're a new believer. You just came to faith in Jesus. And it's a, it's a Saturday night. And someone comes to you and they're, uh, they have no realization that you now follow Jesus, and let's say they, they invite you to the club, right? I'm just making this up. Come on, let's go to the club. And you're like, I don't want to go tonight. And they're like, well, don't you want to go pick up girls and do the thing we did like two weeks ago? Like, don't you want to do that? And you're like, no, actually, um, I want to stay back and read. And you're like, stay back and read? You're like, yeah, like I started reading the book of Job. And like, this guy's really got it rough, man. And like, I'm only halfway through and his friends are like talking to him a lot. And it's just this crazy story. And he's arguing with God. And like, he lost his whole family. And you just start telling your friend about the book of Job who's inviting you to the club, right? Wherever the club is. I just made that up. And, and your friend's like, bro, you don't want to go to the club? And you're like, hey, listen, I'm as surprised as you are that I don't want to go to the club. Like, I, typically, yes. But something happened inside of me that now is different. And, and, and that story may be your story if you're following Jesus. Maybe you find yourself at the club before the Holy Spirit convicts you. I'm saying it is all over the place. None of that affects your positional holiness before God. But all of that is the war of personal holiness with Jesus. The Holy Spirit's work of making you more like Jesus. But the reward of all this, the end game of all this, before, so we're still in the theological part. I'm almost done. Last little piece. And then we're going to get to the practical part. The last little piece is this that the end game of spiritual disciplines or habits, and what you see in Mark chapter 1 with Jesus getting up to go pray is this, that union with Christ, union with God, and, and when Christ is connected to his Father, union with Christ is the heartbeat of holiness, and it's your heart's greatest reward. So what I mean is the peace of Christ ruling in your heart 
is the motivation by which you walk in spiritual disciplines, you walk in habits of holiness. The, the tension is so often, we, we walk through life not feeling connected with God, not feeling peace with God, but we don't do anything about the habits that lead to that peace. And so we think we need to rook, read a book about peace with God, which is fine, you should read books about peace with God. But you realize that doesn't get downloaded and translated. You actually have to work it out. And, and so the, the practical piece, here, here we go. Uh, and this, this, this is going to sound edgy, but I, I need it to sound edgy so that you'll hear me. Um, we are all in a battle with sin. But many of us are enslaved to old habits. We're being conquered by old habits. We're being taunted by our old habits. And we're not treating those things like the enemy that they are. We have just accepted them as a, as a part of our lives and we've given them a seat at our table. And so what I'm saying to you today is that you will not be able to conquer what you cannot confront. And you will not be able to get over your bad habits and sin until you treat them like the enemy that they are. They are stealing from you. What are they stealing? They, they're stealing your great reward, which is the peace of Christ ruling in your heart. They're stealing from you. Gossip is not just a small thing. It's stealing the peace of Christ ruling in your heart. And it's probably affecting your prayer life, and it's probably affecting your relationships. Greed is, is not just a small thing where sometimes you just pick yourself more than you serve others. That, that's actually an enemy that's stealing from you, and you need to respond as though it's an enemy stealing the peace of Christ, ruling in your heart. Your lust issues are no small thing. That's actually stealing from you, and you need to start treating that like an enemy. And so the habits that you have in your life are transforming you into something that doesn't look like Jesus. So this getting up early and praying is not the only part, part of the, the end game God has for you. It's a keystone habit. So social scientists talk about habits. There's a lot of books written about habits. The, there's a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear that's probably been on the bestseller list for the last five years. And it's a book really taken from another book called The Power of Habits that was on the bestseller, look for, bestseller list for five years before that. Habits are everywhere. And they talk about keystone habits. What's a keystone habit? It'd be like, here's a few illustrations. Like having a family dinner every night is, is a keystone habit. It's the one habit that affects other habits. Uh, there's a guy, that, there's like an, a general in the military that wrote a book called First Make Your Bed. Have you guys read this book? It's, it was like a talk at a graduation that was so popular, he wrote a book about it. It's on the bestseller list. And the whole premise of the book is get up and make your bed first thing. And the world's like, oh my God, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard in my whole life. <laughs> Tell me more about making my bed first thing. First make your bed. The title of the book is the whole book. I've read it. I've read it. I'll, I'll admit to you. I've read it. It was great. Started making my bed. That's a keystone habit. His whole thing is like win the first battle of the morning. The first battle you face is the alarm clock and then your bed. It's great. It's awesome. Tracking your food is a keystone habit. Waking up early. These are keystone habits. It's something you introduce into your routine that carries over to all other aspects of your life. What I'm saying is in Mark chapter 1, you see Jesus' keystone habit. His keystone habit that, that plays out into every other place of his life is that he intentionally seeks out the Father in the lonely place. And you see that, that belief, 
that, that keystone habit followed by the belief that all of these other habits that are negative are my enemy can lead to us having a transformed life. So I'm going to take some social science because I believe all truth is God's truth. If you read anything that's truthful, you're like, that belongs to God. I don't care. So all truth is God's truth. So I'm going to read to you some basic social science, and then I'm going to show you how this connects to all truth is God's truth. So here's how habits work in the social science world. Cue, routine, reward. Cue, routine, reward. Every book you're going to read about habits tells you that. What's the cue? What's the routine? What's the reward? The cue is I'm going to put my running shoes and my workout clothes out the night before. That's my cue. My routine is I get up early and I go work out. My reward is I get a cup of coffee and a chocolate when I'm done. Cue, routine, reward. That would be a positive one. There's lots of negative ones. So here's the spiritual thing. You want your life to change? I'm about to change your life. You guys ready? Pull out your notepad. Your life can change right now because of this massive theological thing I spent 15 minutes on. So now that we have that clear, we can talk about how to do this. So many people talk about this without the theological thing, and that is in, that's backwards and broken, and it will lead you to terrible beliefs. Okay, here we go. Now that we know that, we can do this. Number one, see the temptation, isolate the cue. So that's step number one. Isolate the cue, reject the old routine, have the courage to act the new routine. Leave that slide up for a second. See the temptation, isolate the cue. In other words, the sin in your life is triggered by something. Plan ahead right now about how you're going to respond when that temptation is triggered. Because when the temptation is triggered, a routine will kick in. Your body will go on autopilot because you're, gonna, you're seeking a reward that's actually not a reward at all. Cue the routine. Someone starts talking trash about someone else in front of you. That's a cue. You don't like the person they're talking about either, so you kick in with the routine of, I will join you in talking bad about said person. And the reward is, I feel great about myself and that other person who is the worst, we get to talk bad about. You see that as no big deal, like playing Wordle, right? Like, it's not morally neutral. That's, that's transforming you into something you don't want to be. And so see it as the enemy that it is. See the temptation. Isolate the cue and reject it. Reject that cue. When you see it, plan ahead. Put your running shoes out the night before so that in the morning you can go and go on the run that you were supposed to go on. Isolate the cue. So here comes people talking negatively, the gossip that's coming. And you know already, no, 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 not today. Not today, Satan, right? I, I generally hate all of that pop culture stuff, but that not today Satan, I love. So if you have a coffee mug that says not today, like bring all that on. I love it. I love it. So great. Why? Because it's isolating the cue. It's going, not today. No, no, no. You used to be able to get me with that, but not today. You isolate the cue and you reject it. If you've ever seen the old uh, movie, The Christmas Story, and some of you young kids have never seen it, uh, there's a character named Ralphie, and his dad is like fixing a tire in one of the scenes. And, uh, and, and he, like, if you've seen the movie, you know where this is going. Um, Ralphie spills the, the lug nuts while his dad changes the tire, and he says a cuss word that I'm not actually going to say because it's not in the Bible. Okay, so I'm not going to tell you that. But he says, a, he says a cuss word. And his mom, like, rinses out his mouth, right, makes him chew on the soap and calls everybody else where to hear this cuss word. And the joke is, like, you know there's nothing wrong with Ralphie's mouth, right? It's in Ralphie's heart that's the problem. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with his mouth. So the cue was he dropped the stuff. The routine was I've heard my dad say this, so I'm going to say it. And the reward is, well, there's no reward. He got in trouble for it. 
But this is the idea. So stop treating the symptom and start getting curious about the disease. Stop treating the symptom of like I said a cuss word and start looking at investigatively, get curious about why you sin the way you sin. So you want to have a fun routine with uh, someone in your connect group or your spouse? Like get them to, to list your top five sins. They will have no problem with this, by the way. <laughs> like that's fun, right? And then, and then here's what's interesting. When they list out your sins, get curious about it. Don't get defensive. Like get curious about why do I do that? What is it that triggers me to do that? What reward am I seeking when I do that? Am I just, do I just want to feel powerful over other people so that's why I gossip? Do I just want to feel better about myself so that's why I do this? Am I really just afraid that God doesn't provide for me so that's why I'm not generous? Like I'm really greedy because at the end of the day, I just don't trust that God's going to take care of me. And so what is going on in your story and in your habits that you can isolate? Can you get curious about your sin? Because your sin is not, it's not you. It's, it's something that, that connects to you and you, you participated in it, but you're positionally holy before God. So your personal holiness, you can get curious about. Crave the new reward of an inner peace with God. Crave the new reward, that there's union of Christ available to you. But you're not gonna crave that new reward until you get curious about your sins Reject those old habits and receive the new reward. You're like, Josh, what is better than gossip? What's better than me having money for myself and my time for myself? What's better than selfishness? What's better than selfishness is the peace of God ruling your heart. And when you actively live in these sins like they're no big deal, and you come before God in prayer, you come before God in worship, you do not feel at peace. That's because oftentimes your habits are not trending towards Christ-likeness. They're just stagnant and you're stuck in them. And so the peace of Christ ruling in your heart is your great reward. So is it possible for us to, to see what Jesus has done to make us positionally holy, to see what's offered to us on the journey of personal holiness and say, by God's grace, I am going to become like Christ and have new habits for my new heart. Because again, theologically, Jesus took responsibility for your sins. Jesus did that. That's, that's his life mission. He took responsibility for your sins. He positionally made you holy. And now, church, it is up to us to take personal responsibility for our sins so that we can do the work of becoming personally holy. Jesus took responsibility for your sins. Grace Church, it is now our turn to take responsibility for our sins. And we must befriend discipline because it will create desire that will ultimately become delight. Befriend discipline. Befriend it. Reject the old cues. It will become discipline. It creates a desire that eventually will become a delight. It will not be a delight at first. About 10 years ago, I ran a marathon. I ran two marathons, my first and my last. One day, yeah. Ha <laughs> ha. It was a 180-day training plan. I'll close with this story. The band, you guys can come up if you'd like. I'll close with this story. It was a 180-day training plan. On the first day, you ran one mile, and on the second day, you rested. And I was like, this is interesting. But it was like, don't worry, you're going to suffer. The time will come, right? <laughs> and so the, the design of this training was to get you to be able to run six miles. 
in, in 80 days. This was the design. If they can get you to run six miles in 80 days, then for the next 100 days, you run six miles a day. Six miles a day for 100 days. That's the design. And there's a reason for this, and I learned this on marathon day. Because when I got to mile 20, I felt like I had no reason to live anymore. <laughs> I felt like all of me, the, all, the whole meaning of life was gone. Like, let's just lay, like, I had a good, I had a good life. Let's just lay down and die right here at mile 20. And just tell Amy I love her. It's been good. And so I did. I had a goal I was trying to reach. And at mile 19, I could see mile 20, the, the marker in front of me. And I, I actually walked. I walked for about 45 seconds to a minute. As I, and I, I had a talk with myself. And I said, um, here's where I'm at on my time. I could either run the last six miles at this pace and, like, try to beat my time. Or I could just call it and, like, just... Tell, ne never tell anyone today happened and just walk away from the track. Don't even finish. And then something occurred to me right as I got to mile 20. What was left was what? Six miles. What had I been doing for the last 100 days? Six miles. And so even in the darkest, saddest, bone-hurting place of my whole life, what was in front of me was something I had done for 100 straight days. It was something I could do in my sleep. It was something I could do on autopilot. So even in the darkness, even in the misery, even in the frustration of feeling so terrible, I just had six miles. I've been running six miles 100 days. So here, here's what's interesting. It's in the moment of the darkness that you most need autopilots. So yeah, Jesus getting up early to pray is a keystone habit. You fighting off your sins and isolating the cue and rejecting the old routine and receiving the peace of Christ ruling in your heart. You're like, Josh, what's that for? It's for the darkness. So that when the darkness comes, you get up early and you meet with your God. And when the suffering of life, which will come for you, when it comes, you, you get up and you meet with God and you reject the lies of the enemy and you, not today, Satan, and you fight back. And the peace of Christ can rule in your heart. Your routines may feel like mundane routines. But day by day by day by day, the Holy Spirit of God is transforming you into the likeness of Jesus. And it's powerful. Because following Jesus is not just showing up one day on race day and hoping it goes well. It's putting in the hours and the sweat and the misery so in the darkest moment. And when you have a talk with yourself, in that moment, you can be reminded that you have the habits that will push you forward to the reward. There's a great C.S. Lewis quote where he's funny. He says this. He says, following Jesus is funny because it's like day by day, nothing changes. And then one day you look back and everything's different. That's following Jesus. So yeah, he got up early to pray and we can take that keystone habit. But broader than that, engaging in the spiritual discipline so that his peace can rule in your heart is what will transform everything in your life. It will transform everything. So as we go into a time of worship, we're going to take communion. And we're going to continue in worship through offering and through communion, which are beautiful disciplines we have as a church. They're perfectly fitting for this sermon. Because you come forward and you take the bread and you take the juice. And what are you, what are you celebrating? You're celebrating that you are positionally holy before God and you've done nothing to achieve that. You've done nothing to achieve that. That's been gifted to you in Christ. 
And if you're a person who has been around the church for a while and you, you worship through giving, what are you doing in that? You're creating a habit in you that is a glorious habit, that your grandkids will be known for your generosity. And so you're giving. Why? Because that discipline is important. So if you've never taken communion, come forward today and celebrate what Jesus has offered you, positional holiness before God. If you've never given to the church, maybe you give today and you say, this will be a new habit that I have, that I'm going to be a person who's generous. And then as you leave church today and you find like a person in your life, can you talk to someone and say, hey, can you, can you show me my blind spots? And then get curious about your sins. Isolate those cues and watch, watch how day by day it might not feel like a lot, but one day you'll look back and everything's different. Everything's different. And that's what's available to us in Christ. So I want to pray that we be those kind of people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you for the lifestyle of Jesus that's offered to us. God, it is not easy to become like Jesus. We've realized that, but God, you've given us discipline and habit. You've invited us to befriend those things. So God, now as we continue in worship, I pray that we would celebrate communion, celebrate our positional holiness before you. God, I pray that we would give an offering as as a discipline that needs to be in our lives. That's a good habit that makes us more like Jesus. And I pray that we would fight back against sin. We would treat sin for what it is. It's our enemy. We'd treat it as our enemy. God, may we be a church that's transformed into the likeness of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.